is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Time to bang some pots and pans for our healthcare workers and give them a well-deserved raise from yeah. all levels of the government. Yeah. Here's Scott Thompson! Maybe we should start doing that again. Seven o'clock, go out in the porch. Seven o'clock, out in the porch. Oh, Jesus. You're a regular Lars Ulrich, Scott. (laughs) Seven o'clock. You know, if I had that better plan, it wouldn't have flown out of my hand. I just hit the thing and boing, off it went. Uh, Anyway, uh, maybe we should start doing that again. Look, something shiny. Uh, And that's going out and, and banging some pots and pans for our uh, healthcare workers that are, uh, if not sick, like uh, 30% of the population is right now with COVID-19, uh, are certainly putting up with the rest of us who are sick from COVID-19 or who were sick, uh, the 30% across uh, all sectors. So uh, maybe we should be doing that. And interesting, uh, because uh, you you know where I stand on, on, on politics and such by now. And... Uh, <sighs> The one thing that I'm concerned about is when, when Medicare started in Canada, the federal government used to foot 50% of the bill. Now they foot 25% of the bill. This always comes down to money. And if we're truly going to do this system, then it's time that the federal government put up its half that how this system was originally designed. Otherwise, you got to bring in more private money because it just is not out there. And let's, well, I wouldn't go there. So, um, yeah, something to think about. Something to think about. Uh, and, and we were talking about this in the first, second, third wave, whatever. Are we in the fourth or is it 4A? Uh, 4B, or is it the 5th? I'm not sure. And who cares anymore? Uh, after a while, it's do we need to get to the 23rd? Uh, and, and obviously, healthcare keeps coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. We had the Registered Nurses Association on the other day talking about all of this and trying to recruit new people. Uh, there, our healthcare system, it's the number one uh, cost to government. And, uh, you know, it, it's nice for uh, the Prime Minister to stand there and say, well, it's all up to you guys to handle it all. Well, cough up the dough because uh, at the end of the day we're standing in line for boosters and we're standing in line for testing the way we were during the beginning of all of this so uh, if we want to uh, fix this we need to put our money where our mouth is and that's all levels of government stepping up and uh, to keep asking the provinces to continually pay what the federal government no longer does uh, is probably asking a little too much and I think people want to see some more attention paid to our health care system all right there you go there's my rant so far I'll put the stick down all right we got another jam-packed show coming up oh uh, i'm scott thompson that's uh, will weber there on the board and in the newsroom dave woodard and lisa paleski who will all be joining us around the big round table coming up all right we've been just listening to a news conference and q a uh period with dr kieran moore ontario's top doc let's bring in dr ahmad khalid health policy expert and has been uh man uh helping us out since day one of all of this doctor thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Always happy to be on your show, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're just finished listening to Dr. Kieran Moore. I guess first, uh, before I start asking questions, what was your thought? What was your takeaway of what the uh, the doctor had to say today? Well, I think it was very clear from what the doctor said that you know the system is close to a brink of collapse, and that there's a lot of pressure on the healthcare system right now, with testing being a key priority in terms of trying to get at this. So. You know, we heard very clear and loud that testing now, PCR testing is a luxury, that there's a global supply uh, shortage of COVID-19 tests, and that the province is trying in its own capacity to supply rapid antigen tests in the next coming weeks with the federal government providing, I think, in the millions uh, to Ontario. Uh, how how many of us are ill? Because obviously the testing system has been uh, overwhelmed at this point. We heard Dr. Kiramore on his last uh, news conference say that over 30%, like virtually a third uh, across all sectors, uh, absenteeism uh, due to COVID-19-related uh, uh, illnesses and such. Any idea on, and, and anecdotally, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, anecdotally, uh, a friend of mine was at a doctor and said, hey, you know, I, I had COVID before Christmas, got 
got through it. Everything was fine. Uh, and the doctor kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, um, yeah, everybody's going to get it eventually. What are your thoughts? How many of us are, are sick right now? We should be expecting the majority of the population will get Omicron with the way the rates are going. Right now, there are 319 people with COVID-19 in our ICUs. Those are the numbers that actually matter for us the most because it tells us about how our health system is functioning. I think the best way to explain this, Scott, is that I think what we're, we're missing in the narrative is that why do we care, Ontarians, about the numbers in our ICU? Primarily, it's because our system is the national healthcare system funded by uh, taxpayers' money. We're not a private healthcare system. We don't have an abundance of supply of resources, and we don't have an abundance of healthcare professionals like our counterparts in the U.S. or other countries. We have exceptionally limited resources, including human personnel, to nurses, doctors, and other healthcare providers. And therefore, any big strain on this fragile system that we've built can cause a big catastrophe in terms of our ability to handle really urgent cases. And this is why we look very closely at the numbers in the ICU. As of today, there are 319 people in the ICU, and the expectation here is that the majority of people, unfortunately, will be infected with Omicron at this rate. You bring up a very interesting point, Ahmad, in talking about the system that we have because, uh, you know, despite all of the trials and tribulations they're having south of the border with hesitancy and people just not wanting to take advantage of the vaccine that is there, uh, we're certainly hearing stories. That being said, we certainly don't seem to hear as many stories of the healthcare system being as stressed as it is up here. Uh, you brought up the point of this being a publicly funded system. We don't have deep pockets to keep, you know, uh, throwing throwing more money at this. Is is this going to change the discussion about healthcare moving forward and how we reinforce this public system? That's an excellent point, and a point that we're all trying to make, you know, across uh, different sectors is that like innovation now is no longer a luxury, but it's a needed necessity. And what I mean by that is that if we we cannot continue to sustain the system with the damages that it's it's been trying to hold up to it, so you know, and that's why it's a very ill-advised uh, comparison when we compare our systems to the one in the U.S., for example, that is a two-year, two-tier system, heavily privatized big donor money, uh, big pharmaceutical money that helps it to sustain and has innovation built into it. Our system is more like a baby child of that system. It's a one-tier system. It's, you know, the famous former prime minister said, you pay with your health card, not your credit card. And so when we talk about people's ability to access free healthcare services for yourself or your parents, your grandparents, this is what we're talking about when we say the system can no longer sustain itself. It just does not have deep pockets and we don't have enough healthcare providers that are able to cater for now the massive numbers of people hitting its doors. So, uh, doctor, are we naive? Are Canadians naive to think we can improve this system under the current template, that we can improve this system under the current publicly funded scenario we have? I mean, I read earlier on today uh, when Medicare first came out, federal government provided 50 percent. The provinces provided 50 percent of health care. Now that's down to 25 percent and the provinces are up to 75 percent. Are we naive to think we can do this? Of course we can, because we have other countries that are similar to us that have been able to do it. We're not the only country in the world that has a national healthcare system. We look at New Zealand, Australia, the UK being our closer comparator with the national healthcare services there. And they're all able to do it with massive innovation and upscale technologies throughout. There are key strategies that our government needs to look at in in how we can build a more sustainable system for the next pandemic and for the current one we live in. For example, we've been talking a lot about telehealth the ability for people to seek services in the comfort of their own homes without having to access the healthcare services. Yes, that is mostly for the mild cases, but any efforts that you put on the system can reduce the burden it has on its ICU. We should be reserving our hospitals for the most intensive care patients and people who need the most amount of care. Our hospitals should not be accessible to people with mild symptoms, for people with mild injuries that can't be addressed at family clinics, at community healthcare centers, and at the comfort of their own homes. Those are just many of the examples that other countries in the world that have a similar health system to ours have been able actually to do very effectively and well. Why are we unable to do that? Obviously, if there's other better uh, people who are doing it right with the same sort of system that, that we have, because this is not a new problem. 
Well, that's that's that you're speaking my language here, Scott. This is called policy legacy. It's when things have been put into place a long time ago and over time, it becomes very difficult to change them. You need a leadership. You need leadership within the government to say enough is enough and it's time to actually put the money where it counts and make the innovations happen and the changes needed. But you also need, you know, a continuous uh, support for those initiatives. What we see happen is that we advocate for, for those initiatives, we ask for them, there'd be some trickle-down effect where we see a little bit of a difference, but then with the change of government, we go back to square one. And I think this is what the frustration that always has been in our system, is that we don't see massive changes happening that are being sustained over a long period of time. Doctor, as always, we could talk forever, but I want to get one last question out of you. Uh, will the kids be going back to school in person January 17th, do you think? I think that the government is under insane amount of pressure right now from everybody to open up those schools. And so I don't have an answer for that one. I'm looking very closely at this. I suspect if I had to guess that they're probably leaning towards reopening it just by a factor of the pressure they're under. However, with the numbers and the pressure from the healthcare system, this might change. I think we're all going to be keeping a very, very close eye on this. And Dr. Moore uh, reiterated that in the news conference, saying that uh, it was all systems go for January 7, uh, 17th. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert on Dr. Moore's uh, briefing that he just held. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Same to you. Stay safe. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, I want to bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International. He's uh, an aviation expert, and everybody has seen the shot of the Sunwing flight to Cancun and uh, the party plane, as they say, and obviously this is under uh, under investigation at this point, and we're going to see uh, what Keith's opinion is on all of this. Uh, Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International. Keith, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and I hope you are also. Yep, thanks so much. Your thoughts on what you were, uh, what went through your head the first time you saw this video? Well, somebody had a good time, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder how we let the, the situation deteriorate to that level. Uh, was the crew attempting to maintain order? Why didn't they uh, land somewhere if they obviously created safety hazards? So I'm puzzled as to how the situation got as bad as it appeared to have done. Uh, this was obviously a charter aircraft in a large group from one group. Uh, is it common to get all of the, you know, everybody from uh, the exact same group on a charter? And is that why perhaps this was allowed to get a little bit more out of hand? Well, uh, affinity groups on charters aren't unusual at all. I used to fly a lot of ball clubs and, uh, the flight attendants were always able to maintain law and order. I mean, when they won a game, mm. usually on the way home, they were quite happy about it. But yeah. uh, I never have had a situation get out of hand anywhere near like this. Uh, uh, we, they, we, uh, sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. So everyone obeyed instructions as obviously did that what did not happen here. Uh, the organizer of this event said a simple party on a plane. Who could have thought a simple party on a plane uh, would have caused all this buzz? Uh, I'm, many I know didn't even know you were allowed to party on a plane. What are the rules? What can you do and can't you do? Well, the rules are no different on a charter than on any other flight. I mean, surely when the seatbelt signs off, you can walk around and talk to other people. You can't bring your own liquor on board and it was obvious by some of the pictures that people had large bottles of liquor, which they were attempting to consume. Uh, you can't smoke. You're supposed to wear masks per uh, uh, Canadian law at the present time, and none of that took place. So clearly uh, we violated not one but many laws on this flight. Uh, what do you think will happen to those involved? As we mentioned, this is under investigation. What do you think is going to happen? We've heard, certainly heard that they've had trouble getting back, uh, that some airlines have decided not to, and then once they got here, they were certainly questioned and such. Uh, what will happen to these people? Well, in the States, uh, people create disruption, this, particularly since the COVID-19 uh, situation, have been banned, really lifetime banned in some cases, from ever flying again. Their names have been taken down, and they're on a do-not-fly list. And, of course, when you violate a regulation like this, uh, the penalty is a, is a fine, and they're likely to get fined. Uh, I understand some of them may even face prison time. 
So it'll be interesting. I think after this situation happens, the government has to do something to make it obvious that this is not acceptable behavior. Uh, and we have heard that uh, since all this, one passenger has tested positive for COVID-19. Not sure of anyone else. Uh, one last question. Uh, does anyone have to fly them home? How do they get home if everybody says, no, sorry? Well, I think Sunwings is in a, a bad position because the situation did happen on their watch. And uh, they obviously couldn't control the group, so they're within their rights to refuse to take them home. Keith Mackey with us, uh, Mackey International, talking about the party flight from Montreal to Cancun uh, that has so many people talking about uh, what are the regulations and rules in the sky. Keith, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Those who stormed this capital and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America. Strong words from U.S. President Joe Biden today on the one-year anniversary of the Capitol riots in the United States when they tried to verify their election. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, and with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Give us a little bit of an update here. It's been a, re- a year since all of this is gone. We understand hundreds of people have been uh, uh, prosecuted in all of this. When is it over? When does it end? How does it end? Well, look, there are two parallel investigations that are underway. The federal investigation is something that's not going to wrap up in the next couple of hours, next couple of months, and possibly not even the next couple of years. Over the last year, more than 700 people have been charged, but the FBI, which is the, this is their largest investigation in the agency's history, says there are still hundreds of people that remain unidentified, including an individual that dropped off pipe bombs at the headquarters for the Democratic and Republican National Parties. Uh, the Attorney General yesterday said that they will follow the evidence, they will follow the facts, uh, and they will bring to justice the people that were involved, whether or not they were at the Capitol or whether or not they were somewhere else, potentially meaning this investigation could spread elsewhere. There's also a political investigation underway. That, however, runs up against a clock because Democrats run the risk of losing power later this year. Uh, Obviously, uh, Joe Biden, during his speech, uh, quite forceful in what he was saying. He didn't name Donald Trump, but certainly referred to him. Does this create more division down there or is this the right approach? Well, you're right. He didn't name Donald Trump, but he did mention the former president, the president who lost the past president 16 times as a way to try and drive home Mm. that point that this election was not something that was fraudulently won, that this was the will of the people. And sure, you are going to find Republicans who push back and say that Joe Biden is simply politicizing the events of January 6th, namely uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. He made those exact comments uh, just after Joe Biden spoke today, showing that there is still a great political divide in this country. There were Republicans who are still lining up behind Donald Trump to say that his victory was stolen from him from some non-existent widespread fraud. Uh, You have other Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who came out today to say that the riot on January 6th was likely instigated and put forth by the federal government. This is where the Republican Party is standing right now as a way to avoid talking about the riots on January 6th, which is a delicate way of dancing around, making sure that they are not critical of Donald Trump. Obviously, an anniversary you can't make go away. It's here. It's 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 today. Has America's opinion of this day changed over the last year and through these series of investigations? Well, look, there is uh, there are a series of polls that are out there that show that Americans uh, feel that the the events that took place on January 6th were not good for democracy. But at the same time, you have polling that shows 60 percent of Republican voters also think that Donald Trump bears no responsibility, uh, where you have one in three uh, or one in four uh, Republicans who will also say that the events of January 6th were not violent. So there is still a kind of a growing mix of how people interpret the events that took place a year ago today. The majority of Democrats are trying to hold Donald Trump accountable, saying that his actions, his rhetoric, the lies that he spread are ultimately what sprouted uh, the actions that took place, where you have Republicans that say, well, look, maybe we have problems with our voting system, despite the fact that there's no proof of that, that's where we should go. And there are a growing number of Republicans in the base that are following that message. 
Uh, what about the seven or ho- uh, 700 or so people that have already been charged, and as you're referring to, more on the way as the investigation continues? Uh, does that register with uh, that side? Well, I mean, look, there were dozens of, of small rallies that took place around the United States today calling these people political prisoners and looking for them to be released. There was uh, you know, a fear that something could take place at the D.C. jail where a significant number of these people are being held. And again, that is boosted by members of the Republican Party who feel that this was something of, of, a, of a Black Lives Matter uh, riot or something of an Antifa riot, not something of a supporters of Donald Trump riot who were trying to overturn uh, an election that took place, you know, in the months prior. Yes, there are people that are facing charges. There are people that are in jail right now. There are also people that have pled guilty. But there are still people out there who show no remorse and say, yeah, I went to the U.S. Capitol. I was trying to get uh, the election overturned because Donald Trump told us that it was a fraudulent election. Uh, what, how do the Republicans feel about this anniversary? Uh, again, you're, you were saying earlier they were trying to pretty much avoid the issue. You can't change the calendar. Is this Has this completely divided this party? Could this be a detriment to them because it is so divisive? Well, I mean, look, as long as Donald Trump is is kind of hovering over the very top of the party, uh, it very likely is going to continue to split Republicans. In the days after, even in the hours after January 6th last year, you had people like Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham or Kevin McCarthy in leadership positions uh, putting the blame on President Trump, saying that this needs to stop or this needs to never happen again. Here we are a year later. These Republicans are now lining back up beside Donald Trump because they understand getting into crosshairs could potentially spell the end of their political career. Look at someone like Representative Liz Cheney, who has uh, sat on the, the political committee put together by Democrats, now facing a primary and potentially the end of her time in Congress because Donald Trump sees her as a threat and as an enemy. So with Trump still hovering over the top, there is a risk here that Republicans will continue to move his way and ignore what the reality of the situation We've talked that Donald Trump has spoken openly now about his vaccination and such and was even booed for referring to that at a rally. How can you be president and go back to the whole thing is all a hoax and then be vaccinated and become president again? Well, I mean, look, Donald Trump has said that he intends to run in 2024. He's obviously up against a number of investigations, not just about uh, January 6th, but also having to do with uh, with his uh, financial uh, issues in New York. So any number of things could stand in the way of President Trump, uh, former President Trump, once again becoming President Trump. But it also is going to peg the, peg the Republican Party against each other. Do they continue to stand up for their former president or do they try to take the throne themselves and push Donald Trump to the side? Anything can happen in the next three years. It'll be important to watch what happens later this year with the midterms. Does a strong Republican showing show that this Republican Party is willing to continue moving forward, possibly with Trump still as a kingmaker? Anything can happen in the months ahead. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for, uh, tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Will Weber is on the board, coming in from the newsroom to join us around the big round table, uh, the virtual big round table in the newsroom, Lisa Pileski and Dave Woodard. Thanks to all around the big round table for uh, participating today and hope you're all doing well. Um, as usual, we'll start with the poll question of the day. Will COVID-19 response, the COVID-19 response that you've seen by government, change your vote in Ontario come the next election? In June, 67% of you are saying yes. Uh, I want to start with uh, Lisa on this one. What do you think? Is it going to change your vote? I know, you know, the news people, we don't want to necessarily talk about who you're voting for and that sort of thing. So you don't want to get too personal here. But is are you thinking about changing your mind, Lisa? Um, Not really. I mean, I already kind of have my uh, my thoughts on how I'd like to vote. It, it does also kind of it depends on where you live. Hamilton is a, already a very orange city. So it's kind mm. of one of those things where it's like, you know, if I, for example, I live in I live downtown. <laughs> um, that mm. is Andrea Horvath's writing. So it's kind of yep. one of those things where it's like, well, does it even really matter which way I vote? So, uh, yes, it does matter, by the way. Everyone everyone, go vote. Do your Democratic duty. But yeah, I, I, I not really. Uh, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. Dave, your thoughts on this? Going to change your vote in June? Uh, no, it's not going to change my vote. I, I don't think that something like this should, unless it's really... Uh, about the response. I don't think it's it's necessarily ab- about COVID. 
uh, or what's been going on. I think it should mm. uh, really have to do with the response and some of the policies, if you agree or disagree. So uh, it's it doesn't change my vote, and it shouldn't really change your vote unless you're talking about the policy, in, in my opinion. Good point. Well, you want to weigh in? Uh more or less the same of what uh, Dave said, just if there's good policy announced as part of the uh, platforms when it comes to recovery of COVID or, you know, knock on wood, if we're still in this by the time we have to vote, then yes, that will. But in the interim, no. Lisa, you were talking about uh, living downtown and the riding of uh, of Andrea Horbath and such. Obviously, when I think this is going to be her fourth election, uh, is it time for a change in the leadership? Uh, your thoughts on that, Lisa? Yeah, you do have to kind of wonder. I mean, I I've you know I met Andrea. She's a really nice person and things oh, yeah. like that. But I mean, when you're a nice person, it doesn't necessarily translate to being successful politically. And I mean, I think the the last election was probably one of the most successful ones but it, does that actually translate into into progress going forward there's it's it's just hard to tell what's going to happen i don't know if she's going to keep being definitely in this election certainly but it depends on her performance i mean is she going to is, is are people angry enough to vote orange and uh, actually give the ndp uh, a shot in the in the seat uh, i don't i don't know it's really hard to predict anything at this point uh, obviously going to be lots of changes through city council, as we're hearing uh, of another resignation today. Not a resignation, but uh, won't seek re-election. So who knows? Maybe that will instigate change uh, further up the uh, the chain. What are your thoughts on this, Dave, uh, on Andrea Horbath and leadership? Yeah, you know, we talk a lot of times about uh, sports figures uh, in terms of, you know, coaches. They step down because they say that there there needs to be a new voice, right? Uh, Paul Maurice, who is the coach of the Winnipeg Jets just mm. a couple of weeks ago, said they need a new voice. And I think uh, sometimes that, that needs to happen politically as well. It, it's not that you need to change the, the party, it, not that you have to change how the policies are brought out or even uh, necessarily how the, the party votes, but you do sometimes need to change a voice. Um, you know, Andrea Horvath has been, you know, the leader of the NDP party for quite some time. Uh, and you have to wonder if it is time to change the voice as opposed to changing the party. All right. I want to get to our next point. Is Canada becoming more divisive, much like the United States? My goodness. No. I, I, I guess we saw I guess we saw the United States with Donald Trump really go one direction or the other. This uh, you either believe in this or believe in that. I mean, even the pandemic was politicized. Uh, obviously, Dave, uh, you have a, a pretty quick opinion on this. You don't believe we're becoming more divisive. <laughs> I start I think, with you. Uh, so uh, if we if you're comparing it to the United States, I would say no. If you want to compare it to Canada, 10, 15. 15 years ago, then probably yes. Maybe uh, that's a safer yeah. thing to do. And, and, Your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think the the thing is is that it, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the 24 hour you know news cycle. There's a lot of things that have to go on, and there's a lot of people that say a lot of things about politicians and politics. Uh, because they have to feed uh, the beast. And, and so what ends up happening is I find that people really, uh, they get attached to their talking points, they get attached to their politician. Uh, and, and what then happens is that there's no discussion, you can't have a, a, a good conversation uh, about, you know, policy, you then have a conversation about the 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 people that are in charge, the characters. And really, that's not what politics should be about. But I find it often does become that way. Lisa, is Canada becoming more divisive? I don't think it's necessarily becoming more divisive. I would argue that it's um, the fact that we, there's more opportunities to hear from more voices because, you know, we've got social media people. Anyone can have a podcast nowadays or a YouTube mm. channel. So maybe perspectives that weren't necessarily being heard before are being heard, whether that's good or bad. It certainly depends on the perspective that you're hearing. Um, but it, it's really um, that we're just hearing more voices and it really is allowing to kind of it makes it feel like we're more divisive because you're thinking, well, I don't agree with that point of view. Maybe maybe my point of view is so opposite from the rest of the country and it's like well maybe that's not the case maybe you just aren't listening to the voices that actually are are, are agreeing with you that's an excellent point lisa that's a very excellent point however Solid. the more the more the more voices we hear it seems we're having less debate you either believe what i believe or i'm not talking to you 
Yeah, and I, I definitely think there's people who are totally unwilling to engage in any sort of debate or listening to any sort of uh, uh, kind of any anything that kind of opposes their point of view. And that's really that's definitely causing a lot of harm in our our political landscape and our social landscape, quite honestly, because, you know, if you can't if you can't listen to other people and tr- at least try and understand where they're coming from, it's really you're not going to learn a lot you know, in your life going forward, you're just going to miss out on a lot of things that it's kind of unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I think there's a fine line between extremism and hearing the voices of everybody and making sure everyone's yes. heard. Yes. Uh, Will, yeah. Yeah. Will, you want to jump in? Of course. Uh, a part of what makes everyone seem more divisive would definitely be social media, because not just yeah, because outrage drives clicks and clicks drive what you see on your Facebook yeah. feed. So whether or not someone actually believes in I don't know Western separatism or not, but it gets clicks, you see it and you think, wow, this country is going down the toilet and that drives more clicks. And yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, all right. Uh, let's end on a on an interesting note. Quebec can't buy booze or pot without proof of vaccination uh non-essential obviously you have to provide proof essential like groceries such and alcohol and i guess uh weed was all in that now you in quebec they're moving towards can't buy the booze of the pot without the vaccination surprise should we follow suit dave uh, I don't think that we should follow suit. I mean, you'll remember that when everything was locked down, the LCBO and, and the uh, Ontario cannabis stores were still open. Uh, and that was because of people dealing with withdrawal and addiction. And I think that's a, a really big issue that needs to be addressed by Quebec if they decide that, you know, you're going to be closed to uh, to anybody who's unvaccinated, um, then then you do have to consider that because that's a huge issue. Um, if you are, say, dealing with addictions, but you, for whatever reason, are not vaccinated, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? And I think Quebec needs to figure that that out. Lisa, quickly. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I think that I saw this story and I was like, well, they're they're trying to the whole thing is that they're trying to incentivize people. But some people, if they're not necessarily vaccinated at this point, maybe this isn't necessarily going to be the push that they need. And it, yeah. yeah, if you're already concerned about the the impact of covid on your health care system, this is not going to help. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Table. As always, uh, Lisa Pileski, Dave, Wardwer, uh, Dave Woodard and William Weber. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier on, we were talking to Reggie uh, Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, on the anniversary of the January 6th riot, of course, at the Capitol, uh, Capitol building in Washington. And what have we learned from that moving forward? Uh, is there a threat to America's democracy today? We hear that phrase being thrown around. And uh, although the two countries are very uh, are not necessarily similar in, in how they elect leaders and such, are we saying this, seeing the same divisiveness in Canada? We're certainly, as Lisa Pileski just pointed out, we're certainly hearing more opinion. Uh, social media has given us more thoughts, uh, more information to digest uh, from all corners uh, of the planet. But have we lost the ability to debate? Have we lost the ability to agree to disagree? Where is democracy? Let's bring in Jared Yates, Sexton, political commentator and author of the book American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People and is with us now. Jared, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for having me. Uh, one year later, after the riots, where is America's head? Have we learned any lessons here in the last year? You know, I wish I could tell you that we have, uh, but America is not really great at putting things in the context or learning lessons. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've been pretty demoralized today watching that, uh, you know, in the year that has passed, it is pretty clear that America is in denial about what happened on January 6th. Uh, We still haven't figured out why this thing would happen, why this uh, Donald Trump MAGA movement came about in the first place, or we stay in denial of why that occurred. And today just made it even more clear that over the year that has passed, um, there's still a lot of soul searching that needs to be done. So has any opinion changed after the investigations of the last year and the charges that have been laid? Or again, does it just depend on who you ask? Yeah, you know, there there are some people, I think, who pay really close attention to this stuff. But one of the worst indictments of this country over the past year has been 
that these leaks and reports and information have been coming out uh, very frequently, almost weekly at this point, showing that there was an intended uh, coup attempt uh, by not just the president, but those around him. And America has just kind of ignored it, has seemed like they've, uh, Americans have seemed like they've had better things to do than to actually dive into this. So it, it's been a frustrating thing, but I think among those who pay attention, it's, it's pretty clear what has occurred and what we're facing at this time. Uh, your thoughts on what President Joe Biden had to say. Uh, he didn't name the president directly, but certainly referred to the president, the former president, several times. Uh, many thought that this uh, could have been used as a time to unite. Uh, some thought it was divisive. But is that the stand you have to take? What about what the president had to say today? Well, I'll say from a political campaigning standpoint, which is certainly what the speech was, I think it hit every note that everybody expected from it. There was still sort of a, a nod and, and a hint towards the idea that the Republican Party has uh, a more legitimate past, that Donald Trump is not in the tradition of, say, a Ronald Reagan or a George H.W. or W. Bush. Uh, but I actually felt that the speech didn't really get to the root of the problem or where all of this came from in the first place. It was disappointing in that regard. But I, I, I think politically, it's exactly the type of speech that people were looking for. What about the Republican Party's response to this anniversary? I mean, many are sort of downplaying it, but an anniversary comes and goes. You can't deny that. Uh, is this splitting the Republican Party? You know, that's an interesting part here is that the Republican Party, certainly on, on one hand, you have some people who are performatively talking about how, you know, this was a shameful moment in history while others are celebrating it. There are actually Republican Party fundraising parties around the country tonight in which people are getting together to celebrate what happened a year ago. Um, but there, there definitely is a rift in what this date means, uh, what it amounts to, and even, you know, what, what the people were doing in the Capitol in the first place. So the Republican Party is certainly going through its own division and its own internal strife at this point. And, and where that leads, I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. How much, uh, obviously, uh, Donald Trump issued a statement after Joe Biden spoke and said something along the lines of what Biden said was hurtful. How much of an influence does Trump still have? Uh, and is, should the Republican Party be, be, be still uh, you know, riding this bus or should they be trying to move forward from Donald Trump? Well, personally, I would jump off a bus if it was on fire and heading towards a cliff, but I can't speak for the Republican <laughs> Party at this point. You know, he, he still has incredible gravity uh, because more or less what Trump revealed during his time, both as president and on the campaign trail in 2016, was that there was room in the Republican Party for a different type of Republican and a different type of conservatism. I don't think Donald Trump understands that, but I think that what he exposed through his bull in the China shop antics uh, really made it clear for a lot of people that there was a new avenue or a new lane to go into. And they're still working that out. I think right now, if you had to guess, he would probably be the Republican nominee in 2024. But I think a lot of people are looking for alternatives at this point. You have to wonder if America will ask itself, do we want to go through that again, where we're hearing from our president virtually every hour? Well, we are the country that is enjoying one reboot of a dead franchise after another. So we, we're, <laughs> we're, we're ready to go that route. Unfortunately, I think we're, we're looking at 2024 and expecting it to be Joe Biden v. Donald Trump part two. Uh, but I don't think that's healthy for this country, and I don't think it's healthy for our democracy. So a lot, a lot remains to be seen, but that certainly seems like the direction we're heading at this point. Jared Yates Sexton with us, political commentator and author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but failed its people. Jared, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. You certainly know not only uh, how this uh, new variant, Omicron, uh, is so transmissible, um, it, it's just literally affect Everybody knows somebody who's who's been infected by now if they haven't been themselves, and hopefully if fully vaccinated, uh, you know, just had mild symptoms like we've been talking about. However, um, you, you know, it's less about the case numbers at this point because we've obviously uh, outstripped our ability to test and follow because virtually everybody, uh, I think, uh, 
Dr. Kieran Moore said like 30%, over 30%, a third of the staff of every sector is reporting absenteeism. Well, that's happening in the healthcare system as well. So not only are they dealing with you and I that are getting sick and going in and, and asking for help, but also they are short-staffed, not only because of the mental drain and everything that's been going on during this pandemic, but also simply because of the illness itself. Let's bring in Dr. Greg Rutledge, Deputy Chief of Staff, St. Joseph's Hospital, and is with us now. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Give us a bit of an update here, Doctor. How is the Hamilton Hospital system faring at this point? Is it an issue of more patients coming in or just not having the staff to to look after the patients you have or a combo of the two? Yeah, it's probably a combination of the two would be the best way to describe it. You know, if, if we're being honest, our ED volumes have actually been down slightly, not great, but that we haven't seen a massive surge in, in ED numbers. But certainly seeing it in admitted patients and admitted patients with COVID. Um, and then, like you said, just having the staff struggling with our own, our staff are no different than everybody else. Like you said, everyone knows someone who's positive, And so our staff are not immune to that either. And so struggling with shortages on the floors when uh, patients are off self-isolating with COVID. So how is this surge that we're experiencing now different from, say, the last I think two things. I think one, the, just the absolute rapidity with which we surged up. I think everyone's seen those graphs where it's this slow build and then we crest and then we start to come down. And this, if you look at the graphs, it's like a straight line going right yeah. up in terms of the increase in our numbers. And so because of that, it's also hitting our staff. And so in past ones, we have, you know, right now at St. Joe's, we've got eight outbreaks on the floor, which is far and away more than we've had at any point in the pandemic. We've got 233 staff self-isolating, which is far beyond any we dealt with before. And so it's the struggles with how quickly it's coming on, which is then causing everyone to sort of reach. And everyone's sort of familiar with the pattern now. You get it. Several days later to a week later, you start to become unwell. You come to emerge. You come. You're admitted to hospital. So, with there's such a huge amount of those people progressing through that same stage at the same time, as opposed to a staggered approach like we had before. Couple that with our own staff getting ill, and we're left with uh, struggles trying to just make it all work. And obviously, the good news this time out is more and more of us, a vast majority of us, are are fully vaccinated. So, what has what has that meant for the ICUs, and how has that translated in in what you're seeing? Yeah, so our ICU has slow has seen sort of a slow uptake. We're averaging like one a day. That's an additional patient into the ICU. So we haven't seen a massive influx in the ICU. Again, the problem is just our ability to flex up to any numbers is far less than it was previously because we don't have the staff to do it. So we would, you know, we knew we had this buffer of adding extra beds. And of course, the beds are there. There's lots of beds. It's getting it's getting nurses and other, uh, other uh, healthcare workers there to support those patients in the beds. And so our ability to flex up isn't the same. And so that threshold with which we hit where we're struggling with patients is is uh, is what we're dealing with now, and so you know people here Omicron's a little less less aggressive. Not you know we're well vaccinated. We shouldn't get as many admitted, which is true. But just the sheer number of people mm. coupled with our inability to flex in any way is is the struggle is the struggle we're having. Are those, and I, I know no one can can predict this, doctor, but are those sheer numbers that we're seeing and so many uh, knowing or being or testing positive or have recovered from it, is this the beginning of the end of this? Is this when everybody gets it and and because we're vaccinated and, and this uh, variant, not as dangerous but incredibly transmissible, does this push the Delta out, push the other variants out and, and signal an end to this? I think when we all put our heads on the pillow, I think that's what the healthcare workers and otherwise try to convince ourselves this might be the last time and mm. we can start to sort of live with this. What we do know about this is it should be quicker. So it'll be quick on, quick off, which will help us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is pushing out Delta. You're absolutely right. I think the the canary in the coal mine is really getting the rest of the world vaccinated. So if the, you know this this variant came from elsewhere, if a new one develops that pushes Omicron out and doesn't and sort of evades our current vaccination policies or or vaccination uh, ideas that we have out there, then we may struggle again. We hope that 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 won't occur. We hope that everyone the combination of vaccinations plus illness equals antibodies that equals protection. That's our hope. 
Um, and that would be that would be best case scenario here that we struggle through these next three four weeks, which it's what seems like it, it the the numbers suggest that we're going to it's going to be a struggle these next three to four weeks, and then hopefully we transition to something a little more manageable. Obviously, we've heard uh, a reduction of non-essential surgery, so uh, we can have enough uh, bodies and 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 people on deck to to deal with all of this. Any idea when you would see those surgeries resuming again? Yeah, so that will really be based on our numbers. We, we, you know, not not in the immediate future for sure. Unfortunately, I don't say that lightly for our hospital. I mean, I know everyone out there listening probably has a loved one who's waiting for surgery uh, for for really awful reasons, and so I don't take that lightly. The impact that has on someone who doesn't have COVID but is waiting for surgery, and so we want to get back up and working as quickly as we can to get everyone there. You know, we we ever feel that responsibility to the community um just right now we need we need the space we need the workers and and so we just have to be we're still doing those so those really emergent cases traumas cancer cases we're trying to do as many of those that would have a significant impact on people but recognize anyone waiting for surgery feels that impact and so want to get going as soon as we can but not in the immediate future will we be able to to start to ramp up and there's still that directive is coming from the ministry itself that isn't a st joe's or hhs decision that's a that's a ministry decision for us right now dr greg rutledge with us deputy chief of staff st joseph's hospital where hamilton hospitals are right now during the current omicron variant and COVID 19 doctor as always thanks so much for the time and thank those around you that are working so hard to keep us all safe we greatly appreciate it thanks so much we are just talking to uh, dr greg rutledge of uh, st joseph's hospital and obviously how they are making their way through this omicron variant again uh the issues of absenteeism and people just simply getting sick affecting the healthcare system as well as the patients that are coming in the door uh, that need the help of the healthcare system obviously just like any supply chain as you go uh through the chain hamilton's paramedics are delivering patients to the hospital and if there's a slowdown at the hospital and these patients can't get offloaded then obviously that slows down uh the paramedics ability to do what they need to do in order to uh tend to people and get them where they need to be in the attention that they need so how do you deal with this backlog and 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 just what uh the ems is experiencing because of people that are sick and just the sheer amounts of patients that are coming down with COVID 19 let's bring in michael sanderson chief of the Hamilton Paramedic Service and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much, Scott. And Scott, certainly you you captured uh, the essence of what some of our challenges are very well in your introduction. I appreciate it. So how many, uh, what is the absenteeism uh, absenteeism like for uh, the paramedic service? We're hearing that this is uh, hitting virtually every single sector. There's like uh, about a third of of, uh, the workforce that are ill or have to tend to this. What's the situation with paramedics? Well, the situation for paramedics is not as dire as it seems to be in the hospital. I have 29 staff in self-isolation right now. 13 of them are positive. Uh, on a 24-hour basis, uh, we have a short-term absence of about 30 to 35 paramedics uh, for, for all ranges of issues, including COVID, self-isolation, sick time, short-term disability, and, and, and a range of other issues. So it has gone up a bit, uh, and it has challenged us specifically over the holiday season uh, where people weren't as available for overtime. But since we've had uh, paramedics cancel their vacation, we've had to take up on that, uh, paramedics accepting additional overtime shifts. We are surviving, and uh, for the last five days now, we've actually had full staffing of all of our ambulances. That's great to hear. So obviously, uh, we're seeing bottlenecks in what's happening in the hospital system. And as we mentioned in the preamble, uh, obviously, patients continue to come in. And if they're not accepted, then obviously, the paramedics have to wait with them. What's new here? How has the protocol uh, been adapted to the current situation? Well, it's a great adaptation, and uh, Dr. Miller from the Center for Paramedic Education Research uh, at Hamilton Health Sciences is our medical director. Uh, he's worked with us very closely, as has the province of Ontario, to come up with what we call the COVID auxiliary protocol for patients that are suspect as COVID patients, uh, in other words, they have COVID-like symptoms as assessed by the paramedic, and that's averaging about 44 patients a day right now out of our, our total workload. Uh, for, for the patients in those categories, those that are low acuity, uh, they have low symptom presentation, uh, they're not acutely ill in the process. We now have the ability to do a better assessment on the scene and to leave them with uh, better information on how to access other resources other than transporting to the hospital uh, and uh, do a consultation with the physician if required. 
So we're, we're expecting it's going to impact about four to eight patients a day. So it, it's a, a percentage of the 44 param- COVID assessment patients that we're seeing each day. And it's not all of them, but it's certainly going to have some impact in terms of having less arrivals at the emergency department. And of course, because they're low acuity patients, uh, less offload delays for those, because the low acuity patients tend to be the ones that are longest in offload delay. So uh, obviously the view of this variant has changed because of its less severity, however severely uh, very uh, uh, transmissible as we know. So the view of this variant has changed and it's sort of up to the paramedic at this point to say, well, you know what, this person does or doesn't necessarily need to go in. Well, we will always follow. If if the patient doesn't agree to stay at home, we will transport to hospital if necessary, but we'll go through a consultation with the physician uh, and try to convince them of the right level of resource. And and again, it's not just a physician or a a paramedic determination. Hmm. Uh, It is a medically driven protocol. Uh, We do a review of all of the calls. There is medical oversight to the process. So uh, that's one of the keys to this is that whole medical supervision to make sure that it's safe and effective for the patients. So, for example, uh, Michael, uh, if a, uh, a team of paramedics arrive and they're not sure whether this meets the criteria of hospitalization or not, they then contact a doctor and they have sort of a self-assessment or assessment uh, that way. Yeah, I would use the example. A patient is meeting the CTAS, uh, Canadian Triage and Acuity Scare Level of 3, uh, they have a bit of respiratory distress, but not significant. We have them on the pulse oximeter. Their pulse ox is okay, and they're above 94% on room air. Uh, we can make an assessment, contact the physician, and then go over the process with the physician about uh, what the paramedics are seeing and what kind of activities uh, they would like to undertake. So. Uh, we wouldn't be looking at patients with a lot of comorbidities. We're, we're looking at patients that are relatively simple presentations and uh, having a bit of mild respiratory distress that's not significant. You know, at one point during the first few waves of this, it was if you have this, if you have symptoms, uh, get yourself tested, get yourself in. But the position, are, as we learn more about this, our, our protocol is changing quite a bit, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, uh, the numbers are going up significantly in the process, and there are other ways. I mean, you can go to the COVID-19 Assessment Centre. You can contact a physician for the ED virtual care. Uh, Dr. Rutledge has been one of the real leaders in trying to create that uh, process, and uh, we have excellent uh, virtual care appointment access within the city of Hamilton. You can contact Telehealth Ontario. If you're having mild symptoms, uh, if you're having flu-like symptoms, coughs and sniffles, uh, going to the emergency department is not the way to go. It's get it assessed and go through the process, uh, preferably with your primary care physician, uh, but, but look at what else is available for you in the community besides going to the emergency department. As you've worked through this, Michael, through like pretty much two years now, uh, and you look back at it, how has this whole process changed for paramedics? What's different now than it was pre-COVID? Well, I can tell you probably the most important thing is that our paramedics are now, after 20 months of it, very tired. Uh, They've been going through it. It's been very busy. The additional precautions we're taking, the pressure and the strain, uh, the call volume increases, uh, it's very trying on the paramedics. We're seeing mental health challenges. We're, we're seeing illnesses from other issues uh, besides COVID in the process. Uh, but in reality, sick people are sick people. The other calls still tend to happen. We still have the myocardial infarctions, the heart attacks. We still have mm-hmm. stroke patients. We still have trauma patients. Uh, one of the things that was significant in the early days of COVID when there was a lot of restrictions in terms of travel or motor vehicle accidents and trauma significantly decreased. Well, those mm-hmm. have increased now in the process. Makes sense, yeah, as people get back uh, to some sort of whatever normalcy is. Michael Sanderson's been with us, Chief Hamilton Paramedic Service. Uh, Hamilton Paramedic Service and the healthcare system working together in order to better alleviate the backlog and just uh, clogging up of the healthcare system as more and more and more become infected with this new variant of COVID-19. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. And thank you to all you and your staff do uh, to keep us safe here in the Hammer. Much appreciated and please pass that along when you can. Thank you very much, Scott. And please remember, everybody, uh, get the shot. Make sure you, you get your immunization. It's an important thing to do. I appreciate it. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, we saw this uh, last season with the award shows as uh, things were postponed and took different forms and such. And uh, what was hoping to be uh, a more normal version of the Grammys, uh, well, uh, was canceled, postponed. Uh, the Grammys postponing their 2022nd uh, award show. Let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. And with us now, Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Everything is great. Yeah, everything's all right. All right. So uh, considering we see uh, lots of stuff, and, and I mean, obviously we're hearing uh, tons about Omicron and its uh, transmissibility and all that sort of thing, and we've seen it affect sports and such, but it seems that for the U.S., things are still a go. So are you surprised that this has been postponed? Yeah, absolutely, especially because it was supposed to be at the crypto arena, which used to be... Uh, which is the old Staples Center, uh, Staples Arena in Los Angeles. And, you know, down the street, you can see NHL games, you can see NFL games, you can see tons of concerts and clubs, as long as, of course, you show the fact that you're double vaxxed and um, you have a negative test. So the fact that they're actually canceling this was a little bit of a, of a surprise. Um, but the more that I thought about it, it kind of made sense, especially for the industry, because you're having, oh, 500 of the biggest artists in the world all congregate to Los Angeles and then go out of L.A. into wherever they need to go. And a lot of them are going to be on tour. A lot of them have promotional duties that they have to do for their albums. And if one of them goes down or one of them gets COVID, they're all going to get it. So it's a little bit of a minimizing risk sort of a, of a scenario. But it, overall, I think that they made that right decision. So like sporting teams, et cetera, um, you know, they all congregate in, in Los Angeles, have a big party, and then they all take off. The next thing you know, all these tours are canceled. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. But and it's a little bit different because the Grammys make so much of their noise through their television deal um, on traditional broadcasting. If there's no audience, if there's no excitement, the ratings are going to drop even further than what we've seen. Mm. For sports teams, not having people, they're, I'm sure sports teams aren't okay with it, but they make tens of billions of dollars through their television deal that – they can afford to do that and still, mm. you know, have pretty great ratings for it. Well, we've seen um, certainly with award shows with the Emmys and the Golden Globes and the Grammys and included the Oscars is, you know, a 10% drop year on year um, for these award shows for broadcasting. And so I don't think that they want to go even lower if they can't get 20,000 people all screaming with their favorite artists. So are these postponed or are they canceled outright for 2022? They're postponed, but no date has been officially announced yet for a rescheduled date. All right. So um, you brought up a, val- a valid point that, that these award shows are kind of waning, and every year they kind of go down and down and down. Now you put a, a global pandemic into all of this, getting abbreviated versions or no version at all. What will this look like when we come out of this or we get some sort of sense of normalcy? Will people go, you know, I, like many things in the pandemic, I don't need that anymore. I think. And, you know, <laughs> I think that quite a lot of people are saying, I don't think I need to see celebrities dressing up, thanking people for, you know, their success when, you know, a great portion of the planet is actually suffering. I think really what they should do, I think that they should just go on TikTok and have a 20 second limit on speeches, 20 seconds to give out the award. I think the kids today will share it galore and the whole thing will be over in 40 minutes. Wow, that's interesting. So do you think this will change the way uh, uh, the people who produce this show uh, present yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I I, think, you know, not necessarily this year, but I think in the next couple of years, all of these award shows, and I'm, and I'm kind of kidding about the TikTok, but I'm kind of not. Because hmm. if you want to get this new generation of 8 to 18-year-olds, they're not watching traditional broadcast television ever. They're on their phones, they're on YouTube, they're on social media. It might be a good idea to start thinking about how they're going to 
bring in social media networks. And if you do that, you can actually have this award show from anywhere around the world because people are used to watching video on their screen. I think if you have an award show on traditional broadcast television, people want to see the people there. Um, and they don't really want to watch video. There's something, there's just something psychological about that, that, you know, these award shows haven't been able to fight over yet. Are the Grammys still a strong broadcast, still a strong presentation? Yeah, I think so. You know, it, it, I think anytime when you can get music on the television during prime time, it's always a great thing for the industry. And I think like most broadcasting shows, except for, say, the NFL, um, Everything seems to be dropping because the competition is fierce. You have Netflix, you have other streaming services, you have video games, you have people literally going out for more walks these days, just trying to get out of the house. So everybody's time is the most valuable thing that they have. And when you're fighting against all the other free time activity that you can have, it's no surprise that award shows are seemingly dropping year on year. So can we just expect the rest of the award shows to follow as we get into that season? Will they follow the Grammys and postpone? I think that, you know, if I'm the Oscars or if I'm the Golden Globes, I mean, even the, the Golden Globes, are they've actually announced already that they're having no audience, no celebrities, no hosts. They're just handing out the awards. Um, but I think if you're an award show happening in 2022, I think that you have to take a serious look at your schedule you know, right here in Toronto, we saw the Maple Blues Awards that highlight the best in blues and folk music from Canada. They've moved their date from February to June. I think the Junos are probably right now kind of pondering hmm. if they're going to need to do it in the same manner. Good point. Eric, uh, Eric Elper with us, publicist, music commentator, talking about the 2022 Grammys being postponed. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me, man. We'll talk soon. Interesting turn of events, and, and you know, we've talked a lot on the show about uh, the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, now the leaders of Japan and Australia have signed a landmark defense agreement that allows closer cooperation between their military and stands as a rebuke to China's growing assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, the prime ministers of both countries signed the agreement. It's the first such, de- uh, first such defense pact signed by Japan with any country other than the United States. It follows a year of talks that breaks down legal barriers barriers to allow troops from one country to enter the other for the training purposes or or rather for uh, training purposes. To talk more about all of this and what it all means, why now, uh, Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you very much. Why these two countries? Why now? Well, there's a broad strategic interest in both Japanese case and the Australian case, to be wary about the rise of China, and in particular the military rise of China. Japan's right on the doorstep in relative terms. Australia's a good distance away. I mean, Sydney's further from Shanghai than is Vancouver, but close-ish, and, and, and an area that China shows strong interest in. This is a way to make common cause. It's not a, an alliance. Uh, this isn't a NATO but it's an important building block, I believe, to a closer relationship militarily between those two. We often hear Canada can't do anything. We're just a little blip in all of this. We have two smaller countries like Japan and Australia that are standing up to the Chinese Communist Party. Should others follow? What can we learn from this? Well, I think that we could and should develop closer military ties, security ties with both Japan and South Korea. I think that is something that might be in the books. Uh, This agreement was first discussed, I believe, way back in 2014. That is the Aussie-Japan one. And one of the sticking points was Japan as a death penalty. Whether or not the soldiers and sailors and airmen of Australia might be subject to that, it's one of the things that slowed down a long time. But as is often the case, when both sides really want something, there's a way around it. Um, it's, It's an important thing. When I visited Japan with the Canadian Defense College, in 1993, if you can imagine, all I had to show was my military ID card because why the UN United Nations Command still existed, dated back to the Korean War. And this allows really swift and easy passage uh, of militaries for training purposes and for exercises. It just makes common sense.
Will these countries pay a price for this? We all know uh, the reaction from China is usually one of bullying after these sorts of things. Uh, what will be the Chinese reaction to this? It's very interesting. We've only seen from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs press spokesperson's initial response, which was, to me, rather mild. They said you know, things like, you know, countries ought not to make waves in the Pacific. It was just like vague hints. It wasn't the strident stuff that we often see. And I think it may be because during the signature ceremony and in the agreement itself, which I've read some 30 pages, uh, both sides are very careful not to make any reference to China. Uh, however, we all know that the genesis of this is certainly China. That's the reason that this agreement was needed and the agreement that was put into place. But I think both sides didn't want to particularly stir up trouble. Uh, but the agreement has a significance, and we'll see. This could well lead to other things, more frequent exercises. And all this COVID stuff doesn't help. But um, when normal interaction becomes more doable, uh, you may see other small building blocks that would begin to move towards something that might be called an alliance. Australia seems to be punching above its weight here. Um, are they worried that China will somehow penalize them, make life difficult for them, put the boots to them? Well, I think China has already put the boots to them in some things. They're in a really difficult situation, Australia. They're very dependent on China. They've got It's their largest trading partner. Almost 40% of their exports um, go to China, um, over, over 35 And uh, in the case of us, it's 5%. On the other hand, their security guarantor is 100%, virtually 100%, the United States. So I think they'd like to have some more friends in Asia. They even may be looking at a little bit wondering whether the United States, to what degree they can be counted on. I not know this is true, but I know for the case of Taiwan, most recent poll of Americans, would they be willing to fight to defend Taiwan? It was 52%, which is not a big, big number. I think for Australia, dependent on China, wary of China, Having some sort of arrangement with Japan, Japanese have their own similar fears, is a very smart thing for, for, for Canberra to do. Uh, as a result of what we're seeing here and, and this diplomacy going on between these two countries, is that going to encourage other allies to be doing the same thing? We've often heard that, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party will play different countries in the free world against each other. We've got to avoid that. We've got to get back to where we were and keeping a common front on all of this. Will this encourage that sort of activity? I think it will. But here's the big problem, as I see it. In Asia, in Europe, after the Second World War, the rise of the Soviet Union, uh, there was you had a bunch of weak European countries, a strong United States, with a common cause. And the Europeans, amongst themselves, had their differences. The Western Europeans, it is, but they weren't insurmountable. In the case of Asia, um, many of those countries fear China, but they also don't like their neighbors. Japanese and Koreans don't get along well. Australia, Japan's an exception, despite World War II. So there's, it's sort of hard to find that common cause. India as well fears China, but they're a very proud, independent country. I think it would take something very strong and overt on the part of the Chinese to have enough common ground to form an alliance, an invasion of a neighbor, for example, something like Taiwan or some other neighbor that would create a situation where there could be a proper alliance. In the meantime, though, what there can be is individual, one by one or small groups like this Japan-Australia arrangement making um, military collaboration uh, more feasible and easy. Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, talking about Japan and Australia, coming up with a defense pact to uh, deal with the aggression from China and the Chinese Communist Party. Gordon, uh, Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.